0: gift we have in the children of our church offering the gift of music to us. Thank you guys.
1: Good morning. Good morning. Greetings on behalf of African-American Black History Month. Now I thought about what I wanted to sing and I chose Deep River because it's right on time. Everybody has a Deep River. And what do I mean by that? We all want to cross over into campground, meaning we all have problems we have to solve. Well, that's what Deep River is. Slaves weren't going swimming. (laughs) When they said Deep River, my home is over Jordan, they meant they would be free. So the deep river was this environment they were in. And their home is over Jordan. They wanna cross over, meaning they want to be free. Amen. You got a deep river, I got a deep river, we all have a deep river to cross. Mm-hmm. Right. And we have to trust in God to give us the faith. To find the solution, you know, you know that song. everybody wants to go to heaven but nobody wants to die. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Well, that's where the deep river comes in. We ask for strength so we can cross over into the solution of our lives. Deep, 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 deep river, Lord. My home is over Jordan. You're gonna, we're gonna
0: cross
1: over freedom!
2: And receive a reading from the word of God. Create, Create in us a clean, us clean heart, heart O God, God. and renew our spirit within us, according, according to your grace and mercy. May we affirm our faith with joy and a willing spirit as we hear the scripture from St. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, and Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. This is God's word to God's people. Thanks be to God you oh.
3: continue our Lenten walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Last week we were looking at Jesus's uh, baptism in time in the wilderness and uh, I was sharing with you my thoughts about how that kind of revealed a, a spiritual dynamic of, of phases of a process of going from blessing to struggle to resolution and how this Cycling would continue on through Jesus' life, and that we would be well to understand our life in a series of those cycles as well. Following his baptism and time in the wilderness, Jesus, I'm sensing, felt that he kind of understood what God was intending for him, that, that he had this sense of, of being Messiah and and now, through that testing, he had been able to take some ownership of it and, and not stumble into how it might be manifest in his desires and in his life, and, and came off the mountain, I'm thinking, feeling like, all right, here we go. And decided, as the gospel tells us, to go to his hometown, to Nazareth, and to be a part of the birthing of his ministry in his hometown. Maybe he was thinking he would be among friends. We're not sure, but he he got there and, and got the opportunity to speak at the synagogue, maybe like we offer so many of our college students when they come back. Here, you know, <laughs> come, lead a the worship. They were not happy with him. Who do you think you are, they said. Aren't you the carpenter's son? Aren't you just the guy that has been playing on the hillsides for the last uh, 15, 20 years? And you're telling me, you're telling us that you are the culmination of Isaiah's prophecy? Get out of here. Get out of here. Get him out of here. And they tried to throw him off the cliff. There's a cliff, actually, in Nazareth that you can go to with a plaque on it saying, this is the place. <laughs> they thought he was a little full of himself. And, well, there's blasphemy to say that if you're not that. So I... Wonder, Rachel, you want to tell us how your first sermon went? <laughs> was it anything like that? <laughs> Thankfully, mine wasn't either. I don't know if I would have had the resolve that Jesus had if my first sermon was met with people deciding that they ought to kill me <laughs> instead of <laughs> giving me the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> but this is what Jesus was met with. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine thinking that you've sort, sorted this amazing thing through and that it actually applied to you and then you run it up a flagpole and, and people shoot at it? It must have been very hard for him on that human side of himself, it must have been very hard. And I imagine that this is another example for us of how blessing The resolution of coming out of the mountains, feeling comfortable about being the son of God and the Messiah, that blessing then turned into a struggle. Am I really this? If they don't see this in me, is it really me? Into, again, a resolution for he finds his way from Nazareth and instead of um, giving up what he feels called to do by God, he heads to Capernaum with some momentum to get it going. Praise be to God, what a magical thing that must have been. Capernaum is a, a city of about a thousand people in those days that's on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. If you were to kind of pull the camera back and see the Sea of Galilee, just about all of Jesus' ministry happens in that arc of the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. There's a little bit down here in Samaria, and then the climax in Jerusalem, but most of the action is is up here. And he walks over from Nazareth through the Valley of the Doves, gets to the sea, and hooks up around the northern shore to Capernaum. A fairly thriving city, I guess, of a thousand folk based Basically, fishing, but there has to be other industries, other businesses that support a thousand people. We know that it was a pretty good size because there was a tax-collecting booth in Capernaum. We hear about that later, don't we? Yeah. So we know that it was a city of some size. Jesus goes there and on his way meets up with Simon Peter and a couple others. He gets his first disciples and... And then he must say to Simon, well, where's home? I need a bed, you got a room? And Simon puts him up at his house with his wife and his mother-in-law in Capernaum. And this house, this 400, 600 square foot structure becomes Jesus's home, his home base, when he's on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. If you were to travel to the Holy Land, one of the high points would be to go to Capernaum and to see this house, to see the ruins, at least, of this house. You would go into a modern church that had glass floors, and you could peer down the glass floors, and what you would see would be this small little structure which had, at some point, plastered walls with early Christian graffiti and symbols on it things that told the people in the 300s that this was that holy place here in Capernaum and a little worship structure that was a house church in the first couple centuries became a Byzantine church with eight walls and you can see the foundation of that and that became a cathedral church which then became the ruins underneath the modern thing that you go in and you look at. But if you look at it and if you have any of the religious romanticism that I have, you get full of goose pimples, because here it is. This is where the story that we heard today and others took place, right there. That house is about 40 yards, maybe 50 yards from the synagogue where Jesus preached in today's passage. That synagogue is in ruins now, and we see the ruins of a synagogue built in the 300s, but it is built on the foundation, and you can still see the stones of that earlier structure, which was the synagogue that Jesus went in. Whoa. You can't help but say to yourself, things take on a little bit more of a reality as you're standing there and looking. And it was at this place, in this synagogue, and in this little thatched roof stoned home that Jesus started his ministry and started for us, shared with us, one of the main emphases of his ministry, which was healing and bringing people to wholeness. When we read the Gospels, we see there's a bunch of times in which Jesus participates in a healing act with people. He's with lepers, with blind people, with invalids, people who are considered possessed. There's three individuals that he raises up from their dead beds, deathbeds. Sometimes this act follows on the statement of repentance or a statement of belief by the person who is healed. Sometimes it follows on just a friend or a neighbor of that person inviting Jesus to pay attention to that person, not that the person asks for it or that the person repents. Somebody else does it for him. And sometimes the person is just there and Jesus notices him and takes action. Adam Hamilton spends a good amount of pages in his book talking about demons and the devil and possessions because for us moderns, it's a, it's a little bit of a, of a stretch to, to jump into the biblical world and, and see that these circumstances um, would correlate to our times and how we understand things. I like the way that that Adam McCausse holds open the possibility of things but he also reiterates the importance for us in the 21st century to be understanding illnesses in terms of medical conditions and mental health, bringing our intellect and the science of our times to bear on the unfolding of our lives. The main thing for us to recognize is that Jesus healed. And in that he didn't heal everybody, always, forever. We look at those healing acts as something that points to something, that represents something. And we look at those healing acts and we say, Jesus is showing us God's love for us, God's desire for us to have a life that is more whole, healthier and happier than perhaps our lives are now. And though we may not fully live into the consummation of that until we have crossed the river, There is a promise in the living of our days, in these days, that there will be experiences of health and wholeness that boggle our minds because of the power of God's love in our life. And when we give ourselves over to that love, miracles happen. I want to share with you a get-up-and-walk story. If you, if you read a little further along in, in the gospel, or if you come to the class on, on this week, uh, one of the healings that we'll look at takes place in this house of Peter. Um, stretcher lowered through the ceiling. A healing later on that we'll look at talks about an invalid on a mat who's, who's waiting by the, um, the pool of Bethesda, waiting for the spirit to rustle the water and then for someone to get him in. A couple healing stories that we'll look at this week, but I want to share one uh, that's personal to me. I had exploratory surgery. I think I shared this with you. Um, did I? Yes. Didn't I? I had an exploratory surgery when I was a, f- a freshman in college, and, and though my friends who I tell the story to say, well, Dilt, you were not close to death. <laughs> Stop exaggerating. I felt I was close to death. I'd lost half the blood in my body, and truthfully, if I were up in Mammoth, on the hillside where nobody was, no one paying attention to me, I would have died. But I wasn't there, I was in the city, I was with people all around me looking after me and I didn't die. So <laughs> perhaps it's a bit of an exaggeration but what I want you to hear is that I felt that I was dying. And it became a, an experience after the healing that was difficult for me because I I no longer had that sense of immortality about myself. I no longer was so arrogant about my abilities. As a matter of fact, I felt kind of uh, at sixes and nines and kind of broken apart. I was really pretty listless and, and pretty depressed. And it's not that I didn't appreciate being alive. It's just that I wasn't alive to life anymore after that surgery and that experience. There was a community-wide youth minister in our town outside of Chicago. Three or four of the mainline churches decided to hire somebody who would kind of be mindful of the youth in the community, kind of have a larger view over what was going on in town and what kids were up to. Many of us were no longer going to youth groups and, and were doing other things that uh, our folks weren't all that happy about. And so, this youth minister, his name was his nickname was Satch. This Youth minister got me connected to Jesus in a uh, in a more personal and a more intimate, more emotional way. Not the way of my head, of of knowing things, of of being intellectual about God and Jesus and all those things. Being able to say whatever would be a part of confirmation and catechism, I knew all that stuff. But somehow uh, that thing inside, that personal connection. Uh, hadn't really taken hold yet until now. And and Satch helped me to be open to that, to to give my troubled soul back over to Jesus. And in the doing of that, in the doing of that, I came back alive. So what do you make of that? I came back alive and found that The world was worth living in, that relationships were worth having, that there could even be a purpose in my life to go on. And that was, as you can imagine, such a blessing to me to experience that healing. Now, when I think about that, I know that it wasn't Satch that did that. It was God that did that. But truly, Satch played a crucial part in the rebirth of my life, because it was Satch who took notice of me, and it was Satch who built a relationship with me so that I could uh, trust him a bit, And it was Satch who slowly drew me into opening myself up to Christ Jesus. So as Hamilton likes to say, I think of of Satch as my stretcher bearer. The person who, who lifted me up and opened up the roof of Simon's house and lowered me and my stretcher down into Jesus's presence. It was Satch that did that for me. We all need stretcher bearers. We all need people who have compassion on us and reach out a, a heart and a hand to help us forward. Satch brought me back into the awareness of God's presence in my life. That had always been there, I'm sure. And with me now paying attention, God did the rest. And I will say that I am thankful that on occasion, parishioners have trusted me to be their stretcher-bearer. They've blessed me in that way, allowing me into their lives and allowing me to help with God's Spirit to further build upon their story in a good way that brings further healing and further power. I want you to notice, though, this morning that you, too, All of you have the blessed opportunity to be stretcher bearers to others. Look around your family, look around your friends, look around your acquaintances. Perhaps out there among them is someone aching and hurting, someone hungering and thirsting, someone Someone that's just lost, doesn't know what to make of it, doesn't know where to turn or what to do. Someone who feels there's something more, surely there must be something more, something more for them than what they have. But there isn't that light leading down the path for them. Perhaps there are some folk like that around you. My guess is that there is. I invite you to think about what I'm saying this morning and the importance of living out your compassion to people and becoming their stretcher bearers when it might be needed. Help them out, bring them into Jesus' presence in some way, wounded and worried as they may be and then kind of get out of the way and let God do God's thing. Following in Jesus' footsteps, which we're aspiring to do this Lenten season, is to have compassion, to be compassionate towards people, and help them, help them to find their way to the balm of Gilead, to the healing presence. Of Christ Jesus. When you walk in the way of Jesus, when you walk in Jesus' way, when you walk down the path with Jesus of discipleship, you become a part of God's healing ministry through Jesus. What a special blessing that is! Because lives will change. And good will be done. Amen.